Hello, I'm Tiger. And I'm Wolf. Welcome to what is the last and final episode of Tiger Wolf. You probably thought that already happened. <laughs> yeah, it didn't. Yeah. Uh, we're still around. We still exist. Um, but I think we've been talking for a while about sort of shifting to be more focused. Yeah. So we, we anybody who's listened to the Tiger Wolf podcast for a while, um, if you were asked to describe what it was the Tiger Wolf podcast is or was, you probably would be hard pressed to uh, define that easily. So. Yeah. Um, we would talk about a lot. We would talk about movies. We would talk about, you know, retro video games, or we would talk about board games. Yeah. So we basically have decided, why don't we just focus? So um, because we're really interested in board games and spend a lot of time doing that, uh, we're going to be focused mostly on that for a while. Uh, we're really going to split into two tracks. Yeah, the two tracks being board games and retro, uh, retro video, video games. games. Yep. Um, but most pressing, uh, what you're going to see from us is a podcast called Tabletop Lifestyle. And, um, and that will be about diving into um, any number of different topics that are around board gaming, whether it's about um, what's involved in why you collect games or why you hold on to certain games or um, what are the kinds of games that resonate or um, maybe touch your topics like um, what are inappropriate themes in games, that kind of stuff. So um, my hope is to bring in people from all different walks of life, uh, certainly people involved in poor gaming, and just get into some of these topics in depth, you know, and, and hopefully it feels like a conversation you might have while you're playing a game anyhow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I mean, a lot of that's also inspired by the fact that we've been spending a lot of time you know, designing board games and talking about board games and spending time with other people who love board games. And yeah, that's that's our most that's the project we're most excited about. And so we look forward to starting that up. Yeah, I think I think our little community has grown uh, in the last several years as well. So um, that's great fodder for getting different points of view and, and different backgrounds uh, that you talk to on a regular basis about um, board games and everything involved in it. So it's a hobby I definitely love and I'm excited to talk about. And yeah, so stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Um, we hope to have more news mm-hmm. pending. So that leads us into our topic of de- de jour. Topic de jour. Yeah, so in the classic Tiger Wolf uh, style, we're, we're talking about this versus that. We're talking about Euro games versus Ameritrash. And, um, and why are we talking about that? Well, I mean, those are the sort of the two... Uh, large, uh, main buckets that a lot of games fall into. Um, that certainly has been true over the last 20 years or so. Um, and whether or not that's true going forward, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. But um, well, Do you want to maybe start for those who aren't familiar with what these terms mean and where they come from? Maybe start from that. Because I know for me, a Marathrash was like a what? what is yeah. That? Like coming into the hobby, you know, the last, you know, more heavily in the last six, seven years. That didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, what does this term mean? This is just weird insider language. So. Yeah. Well, they're both terms that are a little bit loaded. Uh, Ameritrash is what's probably been used more frequently going <laughs> back. Um, and of course, nobody appreciates the games that they love being called trash. <laughs> um, so What pe- a remarkable surprise. Yeah. People have moved to using Ameritrash a little bit more frequently now. Um, so, you know, what is Ameritrash? Well, it's... Games that classically probably involve more combat, 
more confrontation, uh, high, more more chance. You'll probably see more dice in an Amerithrash game. Uh, they're quite often more thematic. So if you're really mm-hmm. into fantasy or sci-fi or whatnot, uh, there's a good chance that that is an Amerithrash game. Um, and those themes also invoke that confrontation and taking risks. And you know they're very memorable experiences because maybe you slay the dragon on the last dice roll kind of a thing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and according to Board Game Geek in their glossary, it's a catchphrase for American-style board games. In general, this means games that emphasize a highly developed theme, characters, heroes, or factions with individually defined abilities, player-to-player conflict, and usually feature a moderate to high level of luck. Which I, I think is probably becoming less true in terms of the luck piece of that. I think that's where things are starting to change, but we'll get into that later. Yeah, I mean, people's tastes run a lot of different ways so um yeah as we were about to to get into we'll see that um most gamers like i don't really think of myself as an amerithrash gamer or a euro gamer i just i like what i like and and i think of myself as a euro gamer <laughs> yeah and that's probably true because i mean there's specific things you don't like that definitely fall under amerithrash yeah we we talked quite famously about how much i hate scythe i think it's a the, the most beautifully designed game that I can't stand and hate and want to flip the table and burn every copy I see, and even I, though it's beautiful and beautifully designed. Totally. And that's my controversial position yeah. on Scythe. And if I run the ruler over Scythe, as far as those Amerithrash um, like definitions. definitions, it's a pretty diet Amerithrash mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some games that have prominently been known to be Amerithrash are the ones we grew up with. And... Um, you know, Risk is probably the most famous one. I think most everybody would have played at least a game of Risk growing up. And for me, I played a lot of games of Risk growing up. And and I hated it every time. Right. So I, mean, so I should have known better. That's right. I and mean, that fits uh, your, your ethos for sure. I, I mean, I really enjoyed just the really this really simple idea of world domination. And um, it was clear even as a kid that the game had problems because you... Basically, you'd build up, you'd build up, and then someone else would cash in some cards, and their army got bigger, and they pushed you back and pushed you back, and then you cashed in some cards, and you pushed them back, and it would go on literally for a week. Um, I very specifically remember uh, a game that took over my friend's dinner table. His friends were far too nice to allow us (laughs) just to use the dinner table for a week, (laughs) and it took literally a week, and I think that the reason it finally ended was just because somebody essentially kind of gave up and went kamikaze style and (laughs) just threw the whole game, essentially. totally. And and that might even be the origin of the board gaming table, where you have the dedicated tabletop space that you can take off and hide the the game underneath. Yeah. It's probably because of risk. That's probably true. That's the origin. For the first need. War games. But it does really encompass kind of what um, Amerithrash is kind of about. Lots of dice rolling, lots of confrontation. And it even addresses how this idea that there's subsets of Amerithrash, where I mentioned like fantasy and sci-fi earlier, war games is kind of another branch of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing you can say about Amerithrash is that they can tend to be really fiddly with a lot of little rules because theme is so important you want to add a little rules to make it feel more thematic so you know i can move my tank over here but not in the winter because it's too cold and therefore if i'm going to roll my dice to fire at someone in the winter i have to you know subtract blah 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 and there's a winter counter over here and then it's colder oh the temperature gauge goes up oh but then my uh gun heat goes down i don't know yeah The, the, the the there's no shortage of rules to allow thematic Immersion, and so I don't mean to sound condescending because I mean there's some very satisfying experiences. I mean to sound condescending because I, 
<laughs> I'm just um, kidding. I'll did, try not to be too controversial. Did you ever play the um, like Axis and Allies or? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that's and it. I, I played about like a few minutes of Shogun, which is now what's it called? It's called Akusa. It's called Akusa now. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was at one time called Samurai Swords, and yeah. one time it was called Shogun, and yeah. now it's called Akusa. Probably. I first came across it when it was called Shogun. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I am borrowing a copy of that. That probably will never be returned. Uh, and it's called Shogun. But um, uh, uh, what are they called? Marker Brothers? Master Brothers? Parker Brothers? Uh, no. Milton Bradley. That's uh, Milton Bradley. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, <laughs> not close at all. <laughs> they did a series called the Game Master Series. And the first one of those was Axis and Allies. And that was sort of like Risk... Uh, with more fiddly rules, just like we were talking about before. And, you know, we're now at a point now where war gamers will look at Ask Us and Allies and say, like, that's not, you know, a real war game kind of a thing because it's, it's not detailed enough. But, yeah. you know, Ask Us and Allies was something to naturally um, graduate to from Risk and was, you know, the story of World War II um, over a, either uh, the European theater or Pacific theater or even all of it. And, um, and so they, they, they continued this series going, that was in 1981, and then uh, the next year they released a game called Broadsides and Boarding Parties, which was this big, grandiose production with these huge plastic ships because you were pirates and privateers. And um, that game is not particularly remembered, but it is a great example of like because of that thematic immersion, the production's like over the top, and you don't. And that that was a trend in the 80s. Yeah, I think because people's imaginations in board gaming, like you had the beginning of um, you know Gen Con started, so you started to have big conferences that were growing over time let's started small grew Mm -hmm. the 80s was now you have dungeons and dragons sort of in the ethos and the board games are getting broader and bigger yeah it's an interesting time a sort of a renaissance of board games in the 80s yeah definitely i mean it's funny because i think some of those ideas have stuck very few of those games themselves in their entirety have stuck Mm -hmm. um I mean, like most of that series, the only one that really still resonates is Axis and Allies. We also have Akusa that we mentioned, which actually has some really interesting ideas in it that I see show up in games like Rising Sun now, for example. Mm-hmm. But um, they did a game called Conquest of the Empire, which was set in Roman times. Again, not really, doesn't have much presence now. And Fortress America, that was actually remade by, remade by uh, Fantasy Flight at one mm-hmm. point. So, uh, and Eagle Griffin remade um, Conquest of the Empire. So, like, the, these sort of more modern companies recognize that uh, there was nostalgia around these. People did love these in the 80s. Um, they basically were games that required probably a full hour of setup because there's so many fiddly little parts. Mm-hmm. And then moving things around and chucking dice. And it's hard to say how much strategy mattered and how much was just getting the better dice rolls. But, you know, at the end of the day, my memory of those games is definitely fond. Yeah. And, I mean, d- dice rolls, I don't think there's... I, I, you know, I, I sort of, when it gets overdone, it's, it's tough, but at the beginning it's, it's quite appealing when you're younger. Yeah. When you're younger, it's, it's fascinating. Like I remember my fascination with uh, stock ticker deluxe. Right. And yeah. it was all because of these three custom die. And right. It's like, wow, everything moves based on, it's like a sentence. Yeah. Look, the dice roll and it creates a sentence. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. And so I think like those games sort of introduced the idea of custom die yeah you know lots of die roll becoming oh this is interesting and makes this this language this design language that's quite fun well and dice wasn't just used in combat of course i mean monopoly is a very famous example Mm -hmm. uh of just of a roll and move Mm -hmm. um clue is sort of a more 
abstracted roll and move where you have a whole board you can move around and you don't have to go in a straight line like you mm-hmm. do in Monopoly. Um, one of your old favorites, Solar Quest. Yep. Classic roll and move. Yep. Well, I, Hero Quest is the one that, it, for me, is when I think of custom die, that's where I go. Right. Is Hero Quest. I don't even remember if it's custom die, but in my mind, it's custom die. Yeah. I think they are custom die. It's been such a long time since I played Hero Quest. I've never actually played Hero die? Quest. You'll have to tell me about how that one works exactly. Because that one to it's, me... It's basically Baby's First Dungeons & Dragons. Right. <laughs> built on a grid. Um, you have a dungeon master. Dungeon master knows what's going on. Yeah. Everybody else moves around the board based on instructions. You know, when you move in... Just like Gloomhaven, you move into a room, these things come out. And then, you know, you basically set up, here's the monsters. And then mm-hmm. if you move here, the dungeon master triggers, oh, there's a trap you just landed on or whatever. So It, it feels like uh, that like sort of a crossover Dungeons and Dragons moment like you mentioned because yeah. uh, the 80s I think was a decade where Dungeons and Dragons really did um, blow up, you know, to like another sort of level. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it was, it was still firmly in the domain of geeks, you know. Um, we'll see in examples like Stranger Things, for example, it's depicted as like, you mm-hmm. know, sort of the outsider kids that are playing it still. But there's still some, some you know, large appeal that's going on. The 80s, there was that uh, Dungeons and Dragons cartoon I don't know if you're familiar with that at yep, all. But. Yep. Well, it was Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition came out in 1989. Right. So there was something in the ethos. Like, 89 is when HeroQuest came out, I think, right? It is. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yep. So there was something about 1989 that was... Also, 86... No, 87 was Legend of Zelda yep. in video games. So there was this re-emergence of fantasy. Role-playing games. And, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, Final, Final Fantasy. Yeah, exactly. And so... Uh, that makes sense that that's uh, crossing over into board games as well. And that, and that very much fits that Amerithrash theme. I think uh, the hero's journey would be, in, you know, in a box would be an Amerithrash kind of game. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of like what we grew up in, right? We were used to that sort of a thing. You also had like, you know, party games and you had weird trivia games. You had VCR games and like all these kind of like, was just the sort of weird <laughs> nightmare, initiative. nightmare. Yeah. Answer me, you maggots. I used to have the Star Trek, the next generation VCR board game. I still haven't played that. Do you still have it? I don't anymore. No, I, um, <sighs> it was basically uh, a Klingon who had taken over the ship. And if you don't play the game well enough, it, uh, it dies. So it's actually, now that I think about it, it almost was like a co-op in a way, but there was only one winner, but you're all working yeah, together to save guess, the ship. Yeah, I guess Nightmare was also sort of co-op, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. In a weird kind of way. Because, I mean, if there's a potential for you all to lose together, but there's only one winner. Yep. So cutting edge uh, uh, mechanics <laughs> of VCR board games. <laughs> I also had some sports uh, VCR board games that were kind of fun. Sports? Yeah. So, really? But we sold like random. We had an NFL one and we had an NHL one. And basically... It was always exciting when you got to a play because essentially it would play a highlight. Yeah. Um, but you had no idea if, like, say you're playing the football one, you might get a play where your quarterback gets sacked or you might get a touchdown. Like, it's just totally random. There's no, <laughs> there's no skill to any of this stuff, right? <laughs> and so I think that that's why there was a whole group of people who were ready for games that forced them to think a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, before they were called Euro games, they were called German board games. Because a lot of those early uh, designers of games like Catan and Carcassonne were, um, were German. And um, I, I remember for myself, it was right around 2000 where some of these started to sort of trickle uh, over. And, uh, and Catan's obviously a really well-known one now. That was, uh, didn't happen to be one of the first ones that I played. I played, I remember playing Princess of Florence 
and Tikal and Carcassonne and several games like that. Um, and they were all kind of this from this these German designers. And I had no idea that there were things like the Aschenspiel going on, which is a massive, probably still one of the two, if not the biggest board game conventions going on. I think it's the on. biggest. I, I believe it's larger than Gen Con. Still. Yeah, and those yeah. are those are the big two. But Aschenspiel has been around a long time. The Spiel DRS had been awarded uh, at least since the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, um, and these were big, significant awards. And they had major impact on these games, much like an Academy Awards kind of a thing. If you got the Spiel DRS, you would sell very well in Germany and, mm-hmm. and board game sales do very well in Germany. So um, this was all happening totally off the radar to a Canadian kid. Um, but once well, you start... It was also the beginning of like the internet rising. Right. right. So if the internet starts in the 90s, it's sort of a product of, you know, commercial available internet is a thing. Well, and it also allows the ability to actually get some of that stuff over here because yes. of the communication and so on. Yeah. You start to have message boards. And I mean, that's where yeah. the term Ameritrash comes from. It's even hard to... Uh, habitually, I just say Ameritrash. Yeah. It's just easier to say somehow. Yeah. Um, but Ameritrash was a term that was coined and like basically looks like 2000 yeah. on a message board. So. Yeah. According to the vague histories of the internet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but basically, like the, the way these games are different is that um, their themes tend to be a lot drier. And, they, and if there's a criticism of them thematically, it's that the themes often feel pasted on. You are playing a game where you're maybe moving blocks around, and it may be trading spices in the Mediterranean, or it could be on a farm. It really doesn't matter because both themes will work just as well, kind of a thing. So, yeah. um, however, uh, the reason people are who are fans of Euro games like it is because it's very deterministic. Uh, those are early ones, particularly involve little, very little chance at all. Um, Catan- yeah, so it's all it's like cho- it's like chess. It's all of your moves determine exactly what happens, so, and you you win based on skill, not based on luck. Exactly. Now anybody can look at Catan or Carcassonne and see that. You know, every have you played Catan before? I played Catan only like once, and it was so long ago. Right. So in Catan, which is it's, I am ashamed to admit. <laughs> Um, you shouldn't be. I, I think it's a game that still holds up. It, it's it's now kind of one that's been around so long that, you know, hobby board gamers will look down their nose at it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that's silly. I think it's still a game that holds Which up. Which makes it more appealing to me. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> get your nose up about something. I'm, I'm going to tend to be interested. Like, because right. I know a bunch of people that are like, oh, water, water deep. Oh it's, right. oh, it's not very good. What a stupid game. Yeah. It's like, what are you talking about? That's a great game. Totally. It's such a great gateway. What are you, like, yeah. come on. And Don't that, be a song. That's actually a really interesting um, mixture of what we're talking about mm-hmm. because it is has it's it's built on the bones of what's called worker placement, which is very much a Euro style of game. Um, Agricola is a game that came out in two thousand and seven, and really prominently wasn't the first worker placement game, but it was the one that really blew up and mm-hmm. made it a popular thing. So, Lords Lords of Waterdeep is this thing that is ostensibly a Dungeons and Dragons game, but um, you are it's a worker placement game so you know does that make it a euro does that make it an Amerithrash it's mm-hmm. sort of in both worlds mechanically I would say it, to me it's, it's more of a euro but I mean there are you know these ideas where you're grabbing wizards or clerics or stuff mm-hmm. um, but you can tell the, the theme does not really stick because people will just say pass me the white cube or pass me the black cube <laughs> Um, so move the white guy over here, right. oh, move the black guy over there. And it sounds like you're being racist, <laughs> yeah. but actually you're just, 
using shorthand to move wooden colored cubes and blocks around. Yeah, you have to be maybe careful where you uh, play some <laughs> of these games and yeah. who might be around the corner. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, a good, it's actually a good example of how people will criticize Euros for having the theme pasted on, because that doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be Dungeons & Dragons, but it does add a little bit of flavor to it. Um, but, yeah, they tend operative to, word being little. Yeah, exactly. Amerithrash games tend to allow for player elimination. So a lot of the games I mentioned earlier, you know, four-player game, maybe you get knocked out and you're, the game goes on for another several hours even. Um, whereas uh, Euro games typically will use a points tracker at the end. So everybody plays right till the end and then you count up your points, um, which is a bit more like, I mean, you could even say Monopoly is like that, except that in reality, if you play Monopoly for five hours, you probably really know who's going to win in the first hour. Yeah. Basically whoever gets Park Place. Or board boardwalk or whatever it is. Um, well, it depends if you're in the UK. Since what is it? It's uh, Park Lane. And, oh, really? Yeah, different different locations. I mean, there are only like several hundred different versions of Monopoly. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the point being that um, you know you're you're really trying to be efficient when you play Euro games because it's it's you know much more about the decisions you make. So. There were these games that came over that really started to kind of make noise and slowly build the momentum in the hobby almost. Those Euro games are really the ones that expanded the hobby at this time. That's when yeah. Catan came over, Carcassonne, yeah, Puerto, Puerto Rico. Puerto was Rico. Really that introduced this action selection idea where I choose something, I get it, but you also get something, Yeah. Um, which is really cool. And you still game, see that get oh, used. It's incredible. Yeah. I still love that. It still like, holds up. Oh, totally. so good. Um, Power Grid isn't a big one from that time. Uh, when did Power Grid come out? 2004. 2004, yeah. yeah. So those early 2000s were like the Euros were really um, putting their stamp on the hobby and changing it in North America significantly. Mm-hmm. And and those were all famous games. So Age of Steam. Yeah, lots of lots of train games from that time. There's lots of designers like Martin Wallace, who's he's not German, but he's English, I think. Yeah, um, yeah he's English. Yeah, there's a lot of these guys who are really emerging and becoming kind of known names in the hobby. Um, Antoine Bauza would be like a French one um, Bruno Cathal there's all, a lot of these guys who really started to emerge then but I think it's also kind of around the time we started to start to see the American games catch up a little bit Oh, that, there's some inspired. really notable ones that come out around this time right yeah. like 2004 is Heroescape uh, what else came out uh, Nexus Ops Arkham Horror yeah and so Arkham Horror is like that's probably the fantasy flight version and so they're kind of finding their feet. They released um, Twilight Imperium in 2005. And so, Which is pretty much, I think, is the highest rated uh, Amerithrash game it, on BGG. It would definitely be up there. It is, it's sort of, in a way, represents everything that Amerithrash is. It is just this massive opera of a game. Um, and ironically, we're now into the fourth edition, and they have tightened it up a little bit. And the game actually has a lot of... Um, factors in it that are almost kind of euroy because mm-hmm. you have like sort of a technology tree that you're building um your action selection is also like puerto rico where you choose something and everybody has a, the option to follow the action uh the there's almost like a bidding thing where you're, where you're getting your actions to start the round mm-hmm. there's all these things that are not really directly confrontational i mean ultimately i build my fleet i move to where your fleet is we're gonna have to check a bunch of dice and blow each other up i mean that's part of the game but it is, it is a game that is decided by points you know, there's a lot of diplomacy to it. So it's it's actually... It's quite a bit of Euro in it. It is, yeah. And and it's a, it's a game, again, that was really prominently... The third edition was released in 2005. Um, and it's it's really kind of unique. And I think the games that are 
stand out the most are not strictly one thing or the other necessarily. And that's even true back then. I mean, we have um, one of the games I, I, I flagged here is called Choir. That's a game that came out in 1964. And by our definition of a Euro game, it's really more of a Euro game, even though that is from Sid Saxon, who um, I believe is, I'm almost sure is American, was released in America. Um, and it's this, you know, very economic game that's all about, you know, affecting the market, you know, and that was a very kind of unique game to come out at that time. Um, so it's not like these are like totally new ideas. It's just that they they evolved and became more prominent. Well, it's interesting now that 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 has a market. Like you look at Acquire coming around the same time as Risk and Monopoly, mm-hmm. and Risk and Monopoly just taking off, right? And Acquire being this sort of quiet cult classic, sort of a dark horse. Yeah, yeah. dark horse. And now Acquire is like it's it holds up. We mm-hmm. played Acquire. It's like this is a great game. It's and it's still sold. Like it's essentially an evergreen title. That's the cool of every game, right? Is to still be selling units five years after the release, 10 years, and so on and so on. So, I mean, Acquire is still relevant over 60 years later, well, mm-hmm. 50 years later. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's that's interesting. So, we like, I'd say about 10 years ago, we start to get kind of this cool uh, mishmash of, like, games are coming from everywhere, and it becomes a little bit harder to define them. But, um, like, 2008 is a really um, massive year in board gaming. Agricola had just come out the year before, which I mentioned, and that's, you know, worker placement is massive. But we also get um, Pandemic coming out, which really brings um, cooperative games to the fore. So, you know, everybody's working together to try to stop the impending uh, uh, crisis level <laughs> sickness take over the world kind of a thing. And so, again, co-ops that existed before. First one I had played was probably four or five years before that, the Lord of the Rings cooperative game, which was crazy hard. But, I mean, that would again, was more thematic, more kind of a little bit combat-based. Um, but Pandemic really kind of crystallized what a co-op game could be. And well, a, co-op, a co-op board game, like yes. not necessarily a co-op RPG. Totally. It's like my first experience of the whole concept of cooperating and we're all in this together and we win together or lose together was Star Wars, the role-playing game. Like that was sort of my intro to that. So, I mean, there's an interesting uh, delineation there, I think, where with those role-playing games... Um, we will see in board games as well, there'll be a one versus many dynamic. And in the one versus many dynamic, it is inherently going to be combative, right? Mm-hmm. Because if the many are trying to overcome the one, right? In the co-op game, it makes sense that it, that could more easily be Euro because you're working towards the same goal, everybody at the table kind of a thing. And in the case of Pandemic or like when I play with my kids a lot, Forbidden Desert, we're trying to find parts of a, an airship bring it together, build it, and escape the, the storm. There's no, we're not fighting the storm. We're trying to escape it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, just sort of interesting how they can, there's so many different like, angles to, to, to attack this stuff. But um, maybe the last, like, totally new kind of subgenre of game to come out also came out in 2008, and that's Dominion. And that was the, that really introduced what the deck builder is. And um, and that obviously, that, that lives under the, Euro umbrella, I would say. Um, there is some take that to that, but for the most part, it's just about collecting. You know, it's about picking up cards that like you do things and, and getting points and acquiring points. And it's a game that, um, you know, sold like hotcakes that year, continues to sell. They released like, I think their eighth or ninth expansion this year. And, and for all of the, it, it gets criticized a lot, but I think it's one of the best ways to introduce somebody to, um, to, 
change their perception of board games from Monopoly to there's a wider, bigger, more enjoyable world? It's a, it's a very effective uh, gateway game, which is another term. Um, and, a lot, you know, most of the time with these gateway games, it's the Euro games that we will apply that title to because the rules are, um, the games are easy to learn the rules, but the depth of strategy involved is quite a lot. So um, Catan's a great example because you can teach what you're doing in that game in two minutes, you know, maybe five minutes or whatever, but very quickly. Um, but you can play that game a lot and still play different different ways, you know. Uh, it's all got a modular board, so it's always a little different in the setup. Um, yeah, there's 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 plenty there to, to, to keep you going. Um, whereas like the, the Amerithrash games tend to have a lot of rules up front, so it's harder to introduce somebody to something like that. Dominion, same thing. I find usually by the third hand, most people have got an understanding of how it mechanically flows, and it's such a tight system that it, just, it goes around the table very fast. Um, so you can have plenty of opportunities to get it. Um, but it's interesting because when you look at um, Board Game Geek is probably, not even probably, it's the place for metrics on mm-hmm. games and where people hang out. Um, it's interesting because weight on there is a score to say, this is how heavy this game is in terms yeah. of mechanics and etc. But it doesn't really capture how easy it is to teach a game. Mm. Because from a metrics perspective, I've got you know, a list here, here's 90 Euro games with basically an average weight of 2.93. And then the Amerithrash games, I've got 83 in that list. And the average there is like 2.82. Right. So from a metrics perspective, using their metric, Mm -hmm. quote, lighter. But Mm. I would say that you're right. It feels like it's easier to explain a Euro game mm-hmm. than it is an Amerithrash game mm-hmm. in sort of broad strokes generalization. Well, but. I think that's because the the rules in an Amerithrash game tend to be more situational, so it's harder to explain. Right, right, right. This is going to happen. This is going to happen, and then you need to know this. So, like when I explain a game like that, I often won't even get into some of that stuff until something relevant is coming. Yeah. Um, which you know, if I forget to the last second, can annoy people. <laughs> Certain <laughs> people that we play with. <laughs> Um, but the Euro games, yeah, usually you can lay everything out in front and, and they can be quite complex. Like I, just because that there are a lot of moving parts, like you have a game called the gallerist, Mm -hmm. which is fundamentally really simple. You have four spots you can go to, but, um, there's so much cardboard on that table. Yeah. The the implications of those four choices are really far reaching. mm -hmm. So it, you always have the question when you're teaching a game like that, like how much of this do I explain? Mm -hmm. How much do I let them just play and see what happens most of the time people want to know you know what it means to do all the different things because that'll affect their strategy but some people like my wife will just say like let's just do it let's just go and that's why a game like um that has a reference guide next to it where it's like here's what you do on your turn yeah and then you you know what you're going to do but then you're like okay well i'm going to focus on my choices rather than trying to remember what you're doing and the choices i mean What's great about Dominion is it moves at such a great clip. It's like action, then buy, mm-hmm. then complete your turn. ABC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's easy to remember. So the game moves. It's the fastest moving game I've played. Still. Yeah, which I, which I do love. It's, the, uh, it's one of my absolute favorite games, and that's part of the reason. And it, it also has this interesting thing, too, where I mentioned all those expansions, which I have, I think, three or four. Um, they actually add complexity through that. So if you are a big fan of the game, you, you can... Kind of chop and change how you play that particular game. If I'm 
playing the game with somebody new, I probably won't introduce like extra sideboards for like the pirate ship or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I'll keep it fairly vanilla, which is still a fun game for me. Um, but and we played a game uh, last week. Well, you played Raiders of the North Sea with us. Yeah. And the vanilla game of that, I find a fairly easy thing to teach. Um, you put a guy down here, you pick him up, you get both of the actions and away you go. Um, but this, with the expansions, all of a sudden it adds like these other new boards, there's more points trackers, there's more options you can do, there's more follow-up to things that you do. And so all these like situations all of a sudden make it you know, much more of an explanation and it mm-hmm. kind of does your head into the beginning and you have to play several turns before you kind of fully grasp the implication of everything. It took it took a while to get back into the game because it had been a while since I'd played it before yeah. and it was really good. But you like you can always make a game uh, more complicated, mm-hmm. but you can never make it more simple. Yeah. Which is why I love the Dominion approach. Yeah. Start simple, build up. Yeah. Completely. Um, yeah. So I think an interesting contrast to Pandemic that I mentioned is Battlestar Galactica that came out the same year. Um, kind of in a way that I mentioned, like cooperative versus the one versus many thing are both kind of distinctly a Euro versus a Marathrash. Battlestar Galacta really wasn't the first to do this, but very famously had a trader mechanic in it. Um, it's an IP, which again is sort of, it's, it's an Amerithrash trope as well. Um, and, it ha- and I don't know if you're familiar with the show at all, but basically there are characters in the show who are actually part of the alien race kind of a thing and it was unknown to the to the humans so in this game they've simulated that which is quite a clever thematic thing to do mm-hmm. and um and so all of a sudden you've turned what's a cooperative game into a game that's one versus many and has a has a bunch of intrigue to it and you when you're playing you don't necessarily know who the trader is kind of a thing and so they've created this whole like gamesmanship metagame thing going on mm-hmm. where, where you're playing a game and you you know someone at the table is against you but you don't know who... And that's such a great mechanic. Like, playing that in... Um, uh, what's the one I really like it in? I can never... Betrayal at House on the Hill. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> oh, that name. I can never remember the betrayal name of that Betrayal at House on the Hill. Yeah. yeah. I think they've just shortened it. Like, Betrayal Legacy came out, so they're just starting to call it Betrayal. Yeah. Which is great, because that's all I can remember anyways. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know... Um, on that note, like, I don't really know where Legacy specifically would fall into in, in this discussion, but... Uh, for people who don't know, basically what they've done is they've taken this game called Betrayal at House on the Hill. You're playing, for the first half of the game, nobody knows who the traitor is because they don't exist yet. And some trigger thing will happen in the game that all of a sudden you introduce like a new rule book. And somebody all of a sudden becomes a traitor depend, based on like that particular story. And so um, then everybody else has like totally different winning conditions to the traitor. The traitor probably has to kill everybody. Yeah. And everyone has to escape or something like that. Um, so it's kind of a cool concept where you kind of you don't know what's going on until an event happens. So they've they've released a legacy game that has like an ongoing story to it. My under, my understanding is like you'll play one scenario that's in like the 17th century, and then the next scenario is like 75 years later, and so on and so on. And every time you play, it sort of builds on what's happened previously, and your earlier game sessions will actually have a direct impact on probably how the board looks probably how some of your characters behave. I think as you go through the scenarios, your characters are descendants of previous characters you've used, that kind of a thing. So it sounds pretty interesting. Like oh, It's really clever, and it's got Rob Davio working on it, yeah. like designer. So it's yeah. it's such, like, it's rated very, very highly. Yeah. 8.4. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it's 
the the only downside like is, some people have called it game of the year. Yeah, so. I mean that that probably is like the newest innovation since the deck builder. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of a funny thing. It's like a second layer you put on top of games because Rob Davio is the, the father of this idea. He originally did it on Risk Legacy. We talked about Risk at the beginning of this. Risk is very much an Amerith Thrash game. The game that uh, he worked on with Matt Leacock, who did Pandemic, they did a, legacy, a Pandemic uh, Legacy Season 1 and Season 2. That rose to number one on the BGG rankings. So again, he's he's now applied that same model to a heavy Amerith game and a Euro game. And... Um, so it's yeah, it's kind of a really interesting innovation because it mm-hmm. sort of enhances what already exists rather than being this whole new thing. And we're definitely going to have a, a legacy talk in a future podcast for sure because it's it's such an interesting topic and an approach to it is sort of tacked on because it is, but it, you do have to fundamentally rethink the way that you design a game. Yeah, I think it, I, I think it drastically changes the game though. Like mm-hmm. so, it does. Yeah. If or when we do that, we'll have to play through a legacy game. I actually haven't done that. Oh, I've I've done a few now. So. Have you? Yeah. I mean, I've played... I'm really looking for. I don't know. You saw the announcement of uh, terraforming Mars Legacy. Seriously? Yeah, I'm super excited about that. That's funny. Okay, cool. I mean, spoiler that... alert. That's my favorite game. Is that would terraforming be... Mars? Yeah, that, I really like that game a lot too, and that would really fit a legacy game because. Um, the like the regular vanilla terraforming Mars uh, takes place over generations. Yep. So that theme already kind of fits mm-hmm. legacy. Well, and the same thing as betrayal. Betrayal was just ready for that kind of me- yeah, mechanic. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's. I'd say like of the gateways, like Pandemic Legacy Season One is such an amazing introduction to yeah. deep, interesting board games. You know, yeah. it's basically an advent calendar as a game. Right. You know, if you love yeah. opening little doors and getting chocolate or like yeah. opening little doors and you have a traditional one that's just little pictures. Oh, look, it's yeah. a picture of a sock. The, Merry Christmas. The, cha- the challenge with these is uh, being having a consistent group, right? And that's yeah. that can always be tough. So yeah. I'm very interested in trying Pandemic Legacy. Um, Charter Stone's one I'd really like to try. We've played through Gloomhaven a little bit. I mean, that obviously has legacy elements to it, mm-hmm. but it's cool. It is you're essentially unwrapping a story. So, um, yeah, Terraforming Wars is a great example of a current Euro. It has card drafting. Card drafting was really prominent thanks to Seven Wonders, but many games have done card drafting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, what what stands out about Terraforming Mars to you? Why do you like that one so much? I think it's the choice. I, I like a game where I can play a little bit solitary. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's because I was raised a little bit like an only child. So I, I tend to pout, and you've seen this with me at the table, where we're playing something and it's like, don't take my toys. Those are my toys. I, you're not allowed to take my stuff. This isn't fair. Mom, this, is, this sucks. And uh, I still am learning to uh, not pout like a five-year-old when I play games. We're and, playing Triassic Terror, and I'm, I'm right now trying to assess on my head if Triassic Terror even would be like an Amerithrash game. I mean, it's, it's area control. That's definitely Amerithrashy. Yeah. Yeah, area control, I've learned, pushes my buttons. Yeah. Because um, we, same thing, Innis, it pushes my buttons. Right. It's like Scythe pushes my buttons. Yeah. I'm like, okay, area control and me don't get along yet. I need to learn to grow into it. Yeah. For, for me, there's like a contract when you sit down at the table that if it's within the rules of the game, all that stuff's okay. Yeah. And uh, so. I love a game that really creatively, um, Inish is a great kind of hybrid game to me mm-hmm. because there is there is drafting in it, which is definitely a Euro thing. Um, and there are winning conditions to the game. So yes, you are playing area control, but at some point somebody's gonna do something that's gonna 
trigger the end of the game. I mean, Twilight Struggle again is like that too, but um, uh, there's basically, um, you, 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 if you earn so many of these, I'm not gonna remember what they're called, but sort of victory chips or whatever. Right. Um, once someone gets to, to three and then they declare that they're the victor, they, they have one kind of a thing. So it's very different than like, you can do that and maybe at that point you only hold one province or whatever. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter that like you've, you've done the requirements in order to win. So I really enjoy creative area control like that. Mm-hmm. Ethnos is another one that I really like. But I, I think that um, we're seeing way more of these kind of hybrid style games um, that combine, like we talked about Pandemic Legacy already. Um, you know, another game that was really prominent was uh, Twilight Struggle. And I think it's typically thought of as a Euro game, but it's actually quite a confrontational game. So I mean, much in the same way that Twilight Imperium, <laughs> different Twilight game, is not necessarily the Amerithrash game that it's reputed to be. Uh, Twilight Struggle is extremely thematic. Again, that's associated with um, with the Marathrash games. It's about the Cold War. You're playing these events. Like it very much feels like you are opposing superpowers, yep. trying to find ways to mitigate these things. If I, if you're uh, the Soviet Union and I'm the United States, and I happen to have a card that has a Soviet Union event, uh, most of the time when I play that card, you're still going to get the benefit from that event. So I have to figure out how to have that be the least beneficial for you kind of a thing. So there's a lot of damage control essentially that's going on. And that again, feels very thematic to probably the mentality of the superpowers at the time. Um, so it's it's a really cool game that is really thinky. Um, and I think it's a credit to the game, it came out in 2005. I think it's a real credit to the game that it doesn't really fit into one box or the other. Mm-hmm. And that's what's... I could see it fitting into a Euro in the sense of if you were to look at a Marathrash as this is the aggressive, um, con- like mm-hmm. you said, confrontational, but I'll use the words passive or aggressive. Mm-hmm. In a Euro game that's competitive, it's passively competitive. Mm-hmm. So I'm competing against you and I might do something like in um, Architects, um, which I think was the best game of 2018. Um, that game, you can do something that harms the other player, but it's more passive because there's still an out for the other player. Like yeah. They're not as negatively impacted. Yeah. It's not like a, here, I've taken all of your toys. So there's an offset. Yeah, they still have the ability to do stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and in the Amerithrash style, it's much more aggressive. Right. It's like you are attacking and killing this character. Right. Or like, do you know what I mean? So I think you don't see that as much you know, back when there was a stronger division between these two mm-hmm. approaches of gaming. But I think now we've sort of, we're starting to realize like, well, why are we defining games by geography? Yeah. I think, cause you look at it and you go like, where was this game designed? It's like, was this party game designed in Poland? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, do you count this game that was designed in uh, Russia or the, or the Czech Republic yeah. as an Amerithrash game? If it was designed by someone over in Europe yeah. or vice versa. Like you've got a really great um, Euro game that was designed by someone in the States. Yeah. Why, why would you have this as a definition? So now it's getting kind of blurrier and I think totally. people are more focused on the, the breakdown of mechanics. Like yeah. this is an area control game. This is a deck builder and they're less obsessed with this yeah. Amerithrash versus so Euro you, debate. You're more recent to the hobby than I am. Did, did that make it harder for you to identify what you liked? It's just complicated because you're like, there's so many different mechanics. There's so many different options. You see walls worth of people having all these different games. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, well, where do I start? Yeah. Especially like if, 
Because I, I think the biggest barrier to everyone getting into the hobby, at least for me, and I think a lot of people that I've talked to have said the same, is it's hard to learn new rules or it's yeah. irritating to learn new rules. So you've yeah. got to learn this whole new set of vocabulary, of symbols, of shapes, of colors, of mm-hmm. what you do, what's allowed, what's not allowed. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got some sort of uh, niche edge case rule, everybody stop. Let's pull out the, the rule book. Oh, it's yeah. not in the rule book. Okay, let's look it up on the internet. And yeah. you know, everything slows to a halt. Not that I have ever experienced this when we're playing. <laughs> But you know, right? it's like it, it, if you have to do that over and over and over again with a whole bunch of different games, it's yeah. it's hard to even understand that this is an area control game versus a deck builder versus yeah. a drafting game. or And then games are using a whole variety of mechanics, right? So you look at all the different mechanics that are being used and it's like, <laughs> how are you supposed to keep track of this? Yeah, no, no question. I mean, it's, uh, I think, why a really good gateway game is worth its uh, worth its weight it's why we like we really like games like uh, century spice road and azul and, and games of that elf because absolutely they're just so easy to get to the table and they're so accessible for you know non-gamers and that's how you turn non-gamers into gamers is you get them playing those games and then they, they whet their appetite for something just a little bit more meaty yeah, yeah. and you, you have to try things and go this was fun this wasn't fun and really mm-hmm. get a sense of like okay well this is fun this is fun why was this fun? Yeah, and it it's a lot of it's a lot of time. So you really have to be yeah. motivated, and and that's probably where the Euro versus Ameritrash um, mm-hmm. buckets kind of come in handy. I know that if I'm learning a game and it looks Ameritrash, I probably won't give Chris a call um, <laughs> because I you know I know that you're not a big fan of those. So that's that's uh, good information to know. Which is really funny because like one of the games I played most in my life is HeroQuest. So right. 89, I played tons and tons and tons right. of HeroQuest. I mean, I even made a derivative RPG inspired by HeroQuest, right? right? So that's where Terenthia came from. Yeah. Like it was all from HeroQuest. Like yeah. we would do Terenthia scenarios and stories using HeroQuest. Yeah. We'd sort of go, okay, these are the characters, here's where they are. But then we'd expand it by having character sheets and then roll multiple die and then we're like well, hang on maybe we don't need these hero sheet hero quest sheets let's just chuck those away and just use our own system now so even there the uh, definition sort of falls short of being universally useful yeah and i think that's that's seems to be something that's emerging is how useful is the term mm-hmm. other than it's a shorthand uh, and i think a more common shorthand that's more useful to people now is uh cooperative versus competitive yeah I know a lot of folks that are like, I don't like any cooperative or any competitive games yeah, at all. Totally. Or vice versa. Like I'm sort of, I'm not really drawn to co-op games because okay. I don't like people quarterbacking my turns. Yeah. I yeah. like to decide for myself yeah. and not have to consult others. Yeah. Well, and that's where um, sort of like an Amerithrashi dynamic like the trader is good for you then because mm-hmm. nobody can tell you what to do because they might be the trader. So why would you listen to them? Yep. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, the, the, I think at the end of the day, for me, the takeaway is that there's no, there's no blanket rule for any of this stuff. I mean, I think that I probably would draw a direct line between HeroQuest and Gloomhaven, um, and you enjoyed HeroQuest growing up, but I don't think Gloomhaven really stuck for you. Yeah, I don't know what it was. Is so, all all roads point to I should love both Gloomhaven and um, Mansions of Madness. Right, like they they're so similar in some ways mm-hmm. and a more refined version of HeroQuest. Yeah. Yet 
like, man, Mansions of Madness, I just real struggled with it. Even though, I actually think, out of all the games I've played so far, it's actually the most thematically rich. Like, yeah. it just feels so immersive, and, it, and, and yet it, I hated it. You so. know, another innovation, right, where they've integrated an app. And so I think that the app allows you to build the map as you go, and that definitely gives you some immersion, right? You mm -hmm. are discovering... Um, as you go along, what's what's happening? So and it takes away a lot of the complexity of setup, which is beautiful. Yeah, it adds a lot more variability to a board game, so yeah. it makes it actually a better value for money, I think, because you can do so many updates to the the app. Yeah, as the as Fantasy Flight, they could just keep pushing new scenarios. Yeah, and every every fan gets to take advantage of that. It's lovely. Totally. Yeah, they do release physical copies to go with those expansions that give you new pieces to play with and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, they've just announced, I'm, I'm rather excited about a new Lord of the Rings game they've announced that's going to be um, partly in the mode of Mansions of Madness and partly in the mode of um, Descent or Imperial Assault, mm -hmm. which are like dungeon crawler styles where it's like your party against a bunch of enemies and stuff like that. And again, it'll be app driven. So, I mean, Lord of the Rings is a theme that I really like. I do really enjoy that sort of app driven gameplay. I found Mansions of Madness as a little bit on wheels. When I played, like yeah, I, I that was my issue. I felt like I was on a railroad track. Yeah, I didn't feel like the decisions were really that critical. Um, mm -hmm. I enjoyed learning the scenario and having it revealed and the story behind that, but it's it's it wasn't quite enough for me. Um, so I'm really hoping that there's more dynamism to the Lord of the Rings game because mm -hmm. if so, I'll probably be sold hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> Does it is it a miniature based one? Yes, yeah, it is, yeah. So I think that was a, one thing we didn't mention is a lot of Amerithrash style games tend yeah. to be miniature driven. Yeah. So if you're drawn to small figures, Amerithrash is probably for you. Well, and, and that you see that on Kickstarter a bunch, right? Like Kickstarter probably is a home to far more, at least as far as the big successes go, home to more Amerithrash games. Yeah, like Kingdom Death Monster raising millions yeah. uh, because it has all these beautiful miniatures. Yeah, I mean, Zombicide um, really... Probably raised the stakes for what you could do on a Kickstarter, and that was all about miniatures. That's a game where you just kind of run around, chuck dice, and blow up zombies. <laughs> um, and you know, but it's also good, simple fun. Like it, it's it's like playing an old style arcade game. Yep. Um, like playing Gauntlet almost. You yep. know, like so. That's uh, I. I certainly don't. You know, automatically dislike one or the other just because it's a Euro game or it's an Amerithrash game. I just know it's going to be a different kind of experience. And mm -hmm. my, my, the games I tend to like more tend to be more Euro style. But um, then again, I mean, my favorite game is X-Wing, and that's a miniatures game. Uh, that's very, that's Amerithrash. That's, yeah. that's probably one of the top rated um, Amerithrash games. Yeah, I mean, miniatures games are sort of, a, again, another, kind of like war games are kind of a, a subset of Amerithrash games. But I mean, I love the, the thematic feeling of, flying your ship around and building your squad how you want to and outmaneuvering other ships mm -hmm. and you get them lined up and you roll your dice and you hope you get a hit in but maybe your dice is no good so you shot badly kind of a thing or maybe you shoot a hail mary and you, you manage to get just enough hits in from you know far away kind of a thing so um it's a, it's a great fun game that gives me all kind of the charges and, and happy feelings that an amerithrash game can give mm -hmm. but if i look at probably like the rest of my top 10 it's probably all euro style so well, and, and you're not alone in this bias. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to point out was, so I've, I've entered in here, I've got 100, 100 of the top Euro games, 100 of the top Amerithrash games. And on BGG, the score, the average score across that 100 is higher 
for a Euro game yeah. than for Amerithrash. Yeah. So at a 7.6 for the Euro games and a 7.3 for Amerithrash. So BGG actually has a bias, a slight bias towards Euro games as well. Yeah. And interestingly enough, um, the cooperative Euro games score higher with about an average of 7.6 versus competitive being 7.5. And then on Amerithrash, it's the opposite. So actually the competitive Amerithrash scores higher at 7.3 than the co-op that's a 7.2. And it's okay. interesting because that actually does sort of speak to, like if you're a little bit more drawn to cooperative mechanics, mm -hmm. you may be sort of leaning towards, like if you like to sort of get along, play mm -hmm. together, and you're not like an assertive sort of driver style player, yeah. then you might want to go towards zero. Yeah. Um, if you're more aggressive or like playing, or you like to defeat other opponents mm -hmm. and win and you're an, an assertive player, you're probably going to be more drawn to a Marathrash. Yeah, totally. Um, that's interesting. So I, th I thought I'd run down really quickly the history of uh, games that have been number one on BGG and just sort of identify mm -hmm. what they last under. So um, if we go uh, way back, I don't have the years for this, unfortunately, but uh, Paths of Glory was a number one game and that is... A World War One war game. It's, it's like a fiddly, got to know all your little rules for what you're doing war game. Um, and that was supplanted by uh, Tigris and Euphrates, which is very much a Euro game. Um, one of those kind of early crossover ones uh, from like the early 2000s, maybe even late 90s. And that's uh, Reiner Knizia, who was extremely prolific in the 90s and early 2000s. Makes so good. His ethos is that idea of making something really simple to learn, um, but gives you tons of depth of choice and his his designs consistently for me the ones i've played i, I like quite a bit yeah. Um, yeah we just played modern art recently for the first yeah. time finally which is just a straight so a straight auction game but it's still really interesting yep you know i am um, i have uh, samurai by him which is just like it's area control but it's just all you do is put a cardboard piece down anywhere you want on the map which doesn't sound like much but it's like it's <laughs> it, it's the, the which piece you put down on where is a totally uh, there's a lot to think about there. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's he's a really interesting dynamic uh, designer. Uh, that was eventually supplanted by uh, Puerto Rico. And I think that held the number one spot for quite a while, for several years anyways. And justifiably, Puerto Rico is incredible. Yeah, it's, it's a game that, and I'm, I'm saying this based on reputation because I, I wasn't deep in the hobby at the time, but I think it was a little bit divisive because it, it really typified the, you know, the dryness of theme. You yep. know, it's there's not the artwork. It's not pretty. It's not there. Yeah, the theme could literally be so many different things, but the the choice that the mechanics gave you was really uh, rich, and it's also a game that really had a steep learning curve to it, where the people who, if you had played it ten times, and you're introducing it to somebody, you're probably going to smash them. Um, so I think that is a criticism that some <laughs> people have of Euros, and also something that people love about Euros, where you can keep on playing, keep on getting better, and keep on getting better. Yeah. Um, compared to, you know, risk or whatever, you know, you're, you're riding the dice, and if you're hot, you win, kind of a thing. So yeah. Um, so that was eventually supplanted by Agricola, which again was um, sort of the, the, for many people still, the, uh, the cream of the crop as far as work replacement goes. And then uh, Twilight Struggle beat that. Um, and so we've got a run of euros there that are really prominent tigris and euphrates by a very prominent euro designer puerto rico agricola these are these are classic classic games twilight struggle we talked about is 
kind of a hybrid. Um, it's ultimately probably described as a as a euro, but um, it's it's actually like an area control game because you're you're not using troops, you're using influence. But you know, if I have more influence than you in Israel, then that's you know I'm I'm winning that area kind of a thing. Uh, and that was the number one game for a long time, and kind of a funny one because it was not probably nearly as widely played as Agricola or as Puerto Rico, but the people who played it loved it. So it was kind of one of those um, almost uh, cult favorite ones. Um, that was eventually... it's still there. I mean, Twilight Struggle is number five on the list right now. Right. You know, and I think Agricola is probably still quite high. Puerto Rico is probably still top hundred. Um, Agricola is twenty-two. Yeah. You know, and Agricola, like that, that designer is Yuri Rosenberg, German designer, just like I mentioned earlier. Um, he even released a game called Caverna, which was kind of meant to take like everything Agricola did and, and do it a little better, tweak some of the concepts a little bit. And, um, and it's, but it's heavier though, too. I don't know that it necessarily surpassed Agricola for popularity. I understand well, that. It's, it's, it is today, yes. It's number 20. And Agricola is number 22 on the BGG list. From a um, from a point of view of the publisher, um, I think... Oh, that, you mean in terms of financial... Like sales and sales? stuff? I think yeah. Agricola still does better. And partly based on the fact that they still make expansions for Agricola, I think. Mm-hmm. And they haven't done anything for Caverna. Mm. So I think, I mean, I think probably it's people who play Caverna a lot obviously love it. But um, yeah, so Twilight Struggle eventually lost out to Pandemic Legacy. And that was actually quite divisive because a lot of people saw legacy games as a gimmick at the time um pandemic legacy was sort of risk legacy had existed uh people were like oh that's cool but you know because it was risk it it had a had a ceiling to how popular it would get amongst the the board game community they can be quite elitist (laughs) um but pandemic legacy came out and just took the hobby by storm and we now see um, quite a lot of legacy games came, come out. Like Pandemic Legacy came out in 2015. Uh, within that calendar year, it already was the number one game on Board Game Geek, I'm fairly sure, which is very fast. And then that was eventually supplanted by Gloomhaven, which is another um, legacy game. But it really, Gloomhaven to me is like one that thematically has all these things that are Marathrashy. But the mechanics of the game are, are very Euro-y, where there's there's no dice in the game, even though it's a dungeon crawler, it's a fantasy game. They're all things that you often see associated that have like you know dice rolling combat that kind of stuff. Instead, he, you use cards to bid on like when you move and what kind of action you get, and you know how it's going to affect your combat. Mm-hmm. And there's that legacy dynamic where your character grows, you keep your items, the map you put stickers on the map to to reveal new places you can go to, kind of a thing. So. It's it's quite a um, whether you, whether it's a game someone likes or not. It's I don't think anybody can d- deny how impressive it is that a single person designed that behemoth of a game because it's a massive box. It's the size of like four standard boxes, kind of a thing. And um, there's just so much content in there. Like I I really don't realistically realistically expect that I'm going to play through all of the scenarios in my lifetime um, unless I play a lot of it back to back to back kind of a thing <laughs> well and there are people who are doing that sure playing it quite regularly and heavily and well then they're lucky because he's releasing an expansion which seems like totally unnecessary <laughs> to me but um i'm sure probably will do quite well based on the popularity of gloomhaven yeah just back on your question about um i just looked this up uh, caverna gets 2400 searches a month in the u.s on google versus like almost 10,000 for um agricola yeah so that sort of speaks to the general Google search popularity. Yeah, it's so. interesting. I mean, in a, in a way, uh, Agricola is like 
the gateway heavy worker placement game, which is not a gateway game at all, but yeah. like if you really like Agricola and you want something heavier, you'll go to Caverna. If you want something heavier than Caverna, he's also done A Feast of Odin, which is like this game that oh, is just yeah. insane looking. I, I can't even get into it right now, but um, anyways, there, there are layers and layers of these things. So I totally get this idea that it's hard to kind of know where to start. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are lots of good, great gateway games out there. If you know you're super into theme, um, there's lots of great uh, Amerithrashy games that you can start on. Fantasy Flight does a number of really interesting Amerithrashy style games. Um, you know, probably the best thing you can do is just find people to game with and and just see what you like playing with them because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there with big big collections. Yeah, go to a meetup group or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can start to get to know all these different mechanics like hand management, dice rolling, variable player powers, modular boards, set collection, drafting. Yeah. All this stuff. Which by the way, here's here's the here are the top ten mechanics of those two hundred games, both buckets. Uh, number one, hand management, seventy seven games out of the two hundred. Number two, dice rolling, seventy games. Three, variable player powers mm-hmm. at sixty seven. Number four, uh, modular board, so 48 games. So now we're starting to get decrease. Mm -hmm. Set collection, 45. Card drafting, 45. Area control, 37. Uh, Area movement, 32. Grid Hmm. movement, 28. And then the final one being worker placement, 25 games. Right. So actually worker placement, only a chunk of those top 100 in each of the buckets actually has that mechanic. Interesting. Interesting. I guess we better make some more worker placement games. Worker placements! Or something new entirely. With that. Well, that's uh, that probably wraps it up. Yeah? Anything you want to say about anything else? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm prepared to declare a winner. I've sort of said what my preference is. Um, I think the winner is are the gamers The winner themselves. is you. That's right. <laughs> so uh, on that note, uh, let's uh, say thank you, good night. Well, I guess we should probably say thank you for those who've been listening to the podcast. Yes, that's true, actually. Um, and know that we're not going away. We're just moving over to a different feed. Yeah. Um, so if you are subscribing to this feed, uh, stay tuned for the Tabletop Lifestyle feed. We'll be moving over there if you're interested in tabletop stuff. And then if you're more interested in the retro gaming stuff, uh, Retro AF will be coming for you um, because I'm Retro AF. And <laughs> That's going to be there for you. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So we're, we're pretty jazzed about our two projects. Um, on the retro side, probably going to be spending a lot of time doing Koei, Koei Tecmo mm. games because you know, there's just not you, enough coverage of that stuff. Is like, that how you pronounce it? I think so, yeah, Koei. Okay, we've always grown up saying Koei. Yeah. I, we also said Keo Keo and <laughs> Layu B. <laughs> Which is always fun to hang out with uh, my Chinese friends and, and pronounce things poorly. They're like, what? What? Yeah. what? Or, or try to correct them when they tell you the pronunciation of somebody's name. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyways, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you guys in our new podcast. Cheerio. Bye. <laughs>